Hello and welcome to the Sail Loot Podcast, where we share our adventures of the sea and help to achieve that cruising life that sets us free. I'm Teddy J, and this is podcast episode 53 with John and Tori from SailMeOm.com. for listening i could not do this without all of the listeners and all of the support you guys are awesome keep downloading keep listening and please keep sharing because that's what keeps sale loot alive and well i certainly would not keep doing this without all of the love and support i've also got to thank my sponsors for this episode they are once again shelter cove marina and mantis marine I just got done with a 54-hour sail with some great friends of mine from school, bringing Asante from Fort Lauderdale up to Shelter Cove Marina in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Asante is docked and safe until I decide that I'm ready to turn around and head south to the islands again. Are you looking for a safe place to keep your boat during hurricane season or a hot shower and some live music at one of the awesome Palmetto Dunes restaurants as you head south on the ICW? Come say hello at Shelter Cove Marina. When I'm not at the dock during hurricane season, I trust my ground tackle to Mantis Marine. From their anchors, bridles, chain hooks, and swivels to their scuba gear, lights, and rail clamps, Mantis Marine makes some awesome products to help you sleep at night in a gusty anchorage because you have confidence that the Mantis Marine anchor is set and holding. I want to thank all of you listeners again. Without listeners, there aren't sponsors making it worthwhile to pay for the production and hosting of the Sail Loot podcast and website. So if you'd like to help support Sail Loot, the best thing that you can do is share. Share the links with your friends and families and anybody that you think might find some of these sailing stories fun and interesting and anybody that might be looking to live a lifestyle rich in experiences. There are several ways that you can also help monetarily. Do you need a new or better anchor? Well, head on over to sailloop.com slash mantis. That's an affiliate link for Mantis Marine, and I'll get a small commission at no extra charge to you for sending you there. The next time you want to use Amazon to buy something, you can use sailloop.com slash Amazon. And that will bring you directly to the Amazon page, and the Sail Loot Amazon affiliate link will be utilized. You can always send money via PayPal to teddyj at sailloot.com, but why not get something in return by purchasing a Sail Loot t-shirt or hat from the Sail Loot merch page. So thank you. I have so much gratitude for all of you, everybody that listens, everybody that shares, and just... Um, You know, all of the Sail Loot family out there, Asante Sana. In this episode, I talked to John and Tori on SV Scallywag. You can find them at sailmeom.com. That's S-A-I-L-M-E-O-M.com. I found them because Tori requested to be a friend of mine on Facebook. Before I accepted, I went over to sailmeom.com and I did a little bit of internet sleuthing. 
I saw that Tori had listed Salute as one of the podcasts that she listens to in her post titled, quote, eight books and podcasts that will help you build your remote business. I knew right then that I had to accept that friend request, look deeper into their businesses that they had started to build, and talk to them on the Sale Loot podcast. I have to admit that I talked to them months ago. They were in the middle of the Bahamas at the time. Internet connection was poor, but we could talk on the phone. I figured out after talking to them for two hours that I needed to find a better way to record phone calls for the podcast. They had such good insights and great things to say and learn from that I really wanted to release the podcast, but I thought that maybe the sound quality wasn't good enough. I had started to edit, but then I let it slip for and sit and slip for a little while. I've actually had non-recorded conversations with some other boaters about some of the things that they said and some of the insights that they had, and that made me go back and listen again. When I re-listened last night, I said to myself, you know, I can hear everything that we're saying. Uh, I told the Sail Loot audience from day one that we may be dealing with some poor internet service, some poor connection, or some poor audio quality, because that's what we have to deal with when we're in remote places sailing around the world. So I had to put something together and release these episodes. This is the first hour of our conversation. Uh, so this is part one. There will be part two. I think that John and Tori are probably the first people that I talked to that are doing what I envisioned from the start of the Sail Loot podcast. They took their skills from their corporate jobs, started their own businesses to run, and and to run them in a way that they wanted to run them. And they made sure that the work that they accepted allowed them to travel and work remotely. Uh, so I hope you guys get something out of these episodes, and I hope you enjoy. I'm on the line with uh, Tori and John. They, you can find them at sailmeolm.com, and they are on SV Scallywag. So uh, thank you very much, guys, for joining me today. Um, tell, me, tell me a little bit about where you are right now. Yes. So we're, we're in Green Turtle Key in the Abacos. We've been here for just, just under a week. We crossed the Gulf Stream from West Palm Beach about a week ago. Last Thursday. Last Thursday. Yeah. Um, and this is our first real experience in sailing in the Bahamas. Nice. Nice. Um, so I, I found you guys, uh, Tori, I guess maybe stalked me on Facebook a little bit or something and asked to be and asked to be a friend. Um, and I accepted and then I kinda went and investigated you guys a little bit and you guys are kind of doing what I envisioned like teaching people about when I started sale loot, you know, or what I envisioned <laughs> talking to some people about was running a business um in this online world, in this internet era, uh, remotely, basically, because I, I think that it can be done. And mm -hmm. yeah, it requires a lot of different uh, SIM cards and cell phone connections. Yeah, it can definitely be done. <laughs> if you don't right. be looking sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so and so that's what I kind of finally said, all right, I sent you an email that said we have to talk because 
you guys do, how, how you guys are doing it, and everything else. So, um, But first, I'm going to start off the way I start off most of uh, these podcasts and just say, hey, how the heck did you guys get into sailing? Well, we bought we bought Scallywag not knowing how to sail it. We uh, <laughs> we we knew that we wanted um, something that we owned that we could live in, but we didn't want the house yet. We didn't want the mortgage. We didn't want the physical commitment, and we didn't want the commitment to a place. We Cory and I both travel a lot. We met through traveling. Yeah, and I would say like even before we started uh, sailing, we've worked remotely extensively for what, the last eight years or so. So even before we got a boat, we were trying to figure out where we wanted to live in the long term. Um, and so a boat seems like a good commitment to make that wouldn't be location specific. Yeah, and we went, we visited my sister in Minneapolis and she had a boat and we really liked it. And we were like, we should, we should do this. We should get a boat. And so we went back to California and started looking on Craigslist. And literally two weeks later, we bought a boat. And, again, we didn't know how to sail it at all. We got really, really lucky. Scallywag is a 1974 Islander 37 with an amazing, amazing history of previous owners who had really become friends and mentors to us. The person we bought it from, Marty, taught us how to sail it every weekend for, like, two months after we bought it. And the owner before him, Tim, I can call him and he'll walk me through engine repair over the phone. So we got really lucky just getting a great boat and kind of being welcomed into a family of, of owners that have just really loved and cherished the boat. Uh, that, that's awesome. And so where did you uh, where did you get Scallywag? You were over on the West Coast, correct? Yeah, the, the travel schedule is a little confusing. So we're both from Los Angeles, um, and mm-hmm. we bought the boat um, in L.A., basically, um, and kept it in Ventura um, for the first couple of years. And then both John and I got jobs out in New York, and they were fancy jobs, the jobs that we thought we would have forever. They were grown-up jobs, yeah. is what we call them. <laughs> and so... Um, we decided to move the boat out to the East Coast thinking that we'd be in New York for years and we really missed it. Um, we didn't want to sell it. And um, about a year later, if not even a year, we decided we hated our jobs, but we still loved the boat. So we <laughs> <laughs> planned to, to make that more of a focus of our lives and figure out how to go cruising. <laughs> okay. All right. So, how did you move? Did you how did you move Scallywag across the coast? Did you like get her delivered somehow? Or no, we trust her. We we yeah, that was um, and that was probably one of the biggest undertakings that we had done up to that point. Yeah, was it was a, getting a boat ready to be trucked across the country is pretty intense. That's a horrific financial decision to make. We don't recommend it unless you have a deep emotional and spiritual yeah. connection to your boat and don't have children that you have to pay for. <laughs> Good. Well, how much, so how much did, first of all, how much did Scallywag cost? Scallywag was twenty five thousand um, dollars. Not, you know, not bad at all for for a boat of this 
Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, moving it across the country cost about $12,000. So oh, my God. It, wasn't, it obviously wasn't, you know, quite the return that, that we should have gone for <laughs> in terms of an investment. Uh, yeah. But... You know, we love this boat. We got engaged on this boat. Like, this boat is, like, what would you say? Uh, Yeah, I try to explain, and I'm sure you've felt some of this as well, but having a boat feels like a cross between having a home and a pet. It's, like, the place where you feel most at home, but you also care for it like you care for your beloved animal. Yeah, and it's, like, part of the family. Yeah. Right. We just couldn't, we couldn't let her go, and everyone said to sell her, and... Another boat on the I mean, Marty, who sold it to us, wanted to buy her back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, speaking of pets, you you also have a pet, right? Yeah, we do. We have Honey, Honey Dog. Yeah. Um, she is a really weird rescue. You may hear her uh, collar jingling in the background, but mm-hmm. um, she found her best life on the boat. She loves the boat way more than she loves land, I think. <laughs> that's a really good fact. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good. Um, I, I'm I'm actually somewhat surprised to hear that it costs that much to move um, Scallywag across the U.S., I, I think. But uh, interesting. It was, um, interesting. I mean, that was, like, also all in. So it was, like, $8,000 for the truck, and then it was mm-hmm. probably, you know, Anywhere it was like a thousand dollars on on the loading side, and then several thousand on the unloading side because we did a little bit of work. Yeah, side. I also think it was quite expensive because we moved her to the Long Island Sound in Connecticut, and that's mm-hmm. a more expensive place to get work done. So we had a little bit of work done on the mast and the remasting, and fairly small things were quite expensive in the yard that we were in. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we really turned away from doing work in yards in general because no matter what you bring the boat in for, it ends up being a minimum of $5,000 in a yard bill that you then have to fight out. So, <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, we, from the beginning, we've done the vast majority of the work ourselves, but there are probably two or three times in the, you know, four years we've had the boat that we've and like, oh, let's just have the yard do it. It'll be easier. And it's always just a nightmare it's by the end. Mistake. Never say that. No, every time we say that to each other, we're like, no, no. Well, yeah, that, that makes sense. So how long were you in New York? Uh, I mean, when did you get to New York? So we moved to New York probably in 2014, June, August, 2014, 2014. Is when I went out. I went out kind of a few months before it's just to kind of get our bearings straight. And no, he's, he's ignoring the fact that he got a job four months before we were supposed to get married oh, right. in California. <laughs> and so... There's that detail. <laughs> so she stayed behind to help figure out her wedding. And move all of our stuff <laughs> yeah. to New York. <laughs> well, I went to New York and started a job and found a place to live. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but we, so we did, we, you know, we got, if you know Manhattan, like we got an amazing apartment in Nolita, um, you know, had a two bedroom apartment, a washing, washer and dryer in unit and private outdoor space, which is like the unicorn of New York apartments. And we found it also on Craigslist, um, and got an amazing deal on it and loved it. Um, we essentially got into it 
with a deal to take over a lease from someone else and they subsidized the lease for us. And so mm-hmm. as soon as the um, apartment came up uh, for renewal about a year and a half after, um, the rent was going to go up a thousand dollars a month. And so we were at that point trying to think of like whether or not we wanted to move somewhere else in New York, move back to LA or what we wanted to do. And we already had trucked the boat out at that point. So we we're like, let's just move onto the boat and let's just do it. So I think the like real turning point came at the end of basically with a few months to go, our lease was up in October. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, we took a trip at the beginning of, actually it was up in December, but we took a trip in September um, where we just spent two weeks sailing around the Long Island town. And um, we had talked about living full-time on the boat before as sort of a like thing we would like to do someday. Um, but that was when I really got fully committed to it, where I was like, that's just, it's insane to pay crazy amounts in rent. It's insane to, you know, not live on the boat when we love it so much. And, and we had always been doing, since we got the boat, we had been doing three days a week on the boat. We basically did Friday through Sunday as a way to get out of the city, both in L.A. and in New York. Um, so it wasn't a huge transition for us to go from three days a week to, you know, full-time seven days a week. Um, and it was really, you know, it was, it was, it was that combination of just kind of being the right time and in our own development and love for the boat, but the kind of financial decision of do we want to spend, you know, $5,000 a month on rent in Manhattan, or at that time it was $370 a month for a winter split in Jersey City. Yeah. So it was kind of a no-brainer there. It's really clear. Right. <laughs> right. I'm I'm over on like Tori's um LinkedIn page over here and you have had a like plethora of different jobs here. Like you guys were partners in the Tiziano project. Did I say that correctly? Yep. Yeah, you did. Um, um Yeah. <laughs> so John and I ran a non profit together for about five years where we taught um multimedia journalism skills in conflict and post-conflict zones. I would say that was really good training for living on a boat together. Um, <laughs> we, um, so we traveled quite a bit together um, early in our relationship when we were running this nonprofit um, and lived in some crazy spaces together. Yes, yeah, surprisingly, Tori's never made me sleep on the settee in the boat, but I did have to sleep on the couch once in the West Bank. <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely say conflict zones lead to bigger fights than just living on the water. But um so we did that for a while and then um there was sort of a fork in the road for both of us. When I met John, he was a photographer, a professional photographer, mostly freelancing for um AP and I was a professional journalist mostly doing foreign correspondence work. Um, and then we ran the sun profit together, and John worked in the road and went into the um, creative agency route, and then I went more into the media and nonprofit management space, I guess you would say. Um, and so, yeah, and it was at that point, like we had kind of run out of funding with the nonprofit. We had like a successful run. We got funding from Google and the Knight Foundation, and and you know, was really able to 
make it into a great program for a good amount of time. But eventually, it, it not only just were we running low on funds, but it kind of mentally and physically drained us. Yeah. We kind of needed to take stock and take a break from that for a little while. And what Tori was kind of saying that we moved into, I, I started my own creative agency that did web and app development for social impact. Um, but it was entirely remote, an entirely remote distributed team that I that I built, and Tori was was at that point um, basically managing editor for Upworthy, which was also an entirely remote team. So we kind of went from running a nonprofit overseas and in these these international areas to running businesses that entirely remote. Anyways. Yeah, and a lot of what I did in addition to doing editorial work was trying to scale a very large team remotely, which I think for both of us probably has led to a lot of our remote successes because I really got to dive deep into how to manage companies well while not being in person. So I think that that's one thing that really benefited both, benefited both of us, I think. From there... Um that's kind of when I, I made the transition first to a company in New York that, that um, I had found through a friend of Tori's who used to work there. Um, but it was it's a you know large global PR agency based in New York, and we started talking, and they they created a position for me um, that was you know a senior vice president role. Between, over two of their divisions to help bring innovation into some of their 65-year-old business practices and PR practices. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of just this clean job where it was like, you know, getting to go to New York, do New York right as like, you know, an executive with enough of a salary to actually be able to live in Manhattan. <laughs> Enjoy it a lot. <laughs> so we're right. just like, let's, let's, let's try it. And Tori then ended up yeah, once I was there, like, as soon as you get to New York, if you're in the media world, you're just constantly recruited. And so I got recruited by Slate to be their director of strategy. And I right. think what was kind of interesting, for better or for worse, about both of our roles is that because of the weird background we both had in tech and storytelling, we were made into the change makers of our organizations, um, which is both really fun, but also... Uh, very difficult, um, and so I think that was one of the things that led to like a strong sense of burnout, or maybe not burnout, but just like ready to move on after about a year and a half. Because um, you know you're constantly encouraging people to to do something that they don't want to do <laughs> for the betterment of the world and their company. So, um, so we were both kind of facing that in very different ways in our companies. But it was great. It was a great um, set of experiences to then lead into our own work, I think. Okay. So you guys, uh, real all right, that, you know, this is completely rude of me to ever ask a woman how old she is, but how old are you guys? I'm 31. And 34. Okay. You guys have done quite well in your, like, a few years after. After school, I'm assuming you went to school. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say and I, I try to give a lot of people like advice and mentorship and career coaching. Yeah. and like I, 
try to tell people a lot that, like, you don't need to do the traditional corporate ladder anymore. Like, that's definitely one way you can go, and it, it works, and it's very successful. But what's more important, like, you know, essentially say, but doing stuff you're passionate about and then figuring out ways to do it at kind of the height and pinnacle of whatever industry you're doing it in. There's a lot of the work that I did, like coming out of college, I never worked for another company. I only did projects for myself, but I was still able to enter the corporate world at the SVP level. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, you don't have to climb the ladder. You just have to be able to do what you want to do in a successful way. Sorry, that's the, that's the dog shaking. Um, <laughs> do what you do in kind of a successful way and be able to communicate that story of why it's relevant when, if and when you choose to make that jump into, you know, another sector. Right. Yeah, well, okay. And then, so you guys decided eventually to, to quit those jobs that you guys had. Like, Tori, well, you decided to quit with Slate, yeah. or are you still working with them at all? Well, what, no, I'm not working with them. I, I think that the one thing that I would say about the, like, do what you want to do thing and, like, deciding to quit it, we're technically millennials by, like, one hair of a lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the only thing that we get from that designation is that both of us have had a new job at least every two years. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I think one of the things that really benefited us was that we grew experience really quickly from a variety of different fields. We were in the nonprofit space and the media space mm-hmm. and the corporate space. Um, and so I think that was probably one big difference. So when we moved to New York and took these jobs, we were working at companies where it's like the average length of time that people work there is five to seven years, which in media industry time is, like, dinosaurishly long. Um, right. Crazy. Like, I had never worked – I've worked at many media companies, and I've never worked at a place where people stay more than two years on average. So – it was really interesting to be a part of that culture, but foreign to me. And I mean, John worked in a place where people were there for forever, <laughs> forever, um, really forever. And so, when we decided to move on, I think the choice that we were making was not just "Hey, we want to go sailing," but I interviewed at every major media company in New York for uh, you know VP roles, and I was just not. Feeling them. Like, I just wanted to do something more interesting. Um, and I think John felt the same way. He, he looked at a lot of different options, and we were like, all right, in the life architecture that we're looking at, it's not just about a job, but it's a lifestyle. And we have a very long series of conversations over lots of glasses of wine, what we wanted our lives to look like in the long term. And a lot of it had to do with having more freedom for um, ourselves and growing ourselves as whole people as opposed to just having a fancy job. Right. But we still wanted to and, make money. <laughs> right, yeah. We wanted to make money, but we also wanted to do cool things. Yeah. And we just yeah, felt yeah. like, you know, we have this run of like two years in New York where we didn't feel like we were doing anything super innovative anymore. We had come off of, you know, this high streak of several years where we were, you know, 
building these platforms that are winning all these awards and getting all this recognition and everything else. And then we kind of felt like we went into the machine and regressed yeah. a little bit in terms of like our own innovation and, and execution of things and creation. And we just wanted to get back into that um, space where we were actually creating and building things that we were really proud of and they were kind of pushing the boundaries of our industries. Okay. So you guys decided to quit your jobs and create your own businesses, correct? Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. so it happened in a couple of different ways. So we first decided we're going to move out of our apartment and onto our boat mm-hmm. with right. the goal of eventually going cruising to at least get back to California. Our goal was actually to mm-hmm. sail down the coast to the Caribbean, through the Panama Canal, and then home to L.A., that was like step one in a multi-part plan, and then we were like, "That was like the only part of the plan." Yeah, that was so like, <laughs> like our plan consisted of two parts. Part one was sail north, and then part two was sail south. That was our plan. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so and we actually accomplished yeah. both of them. Now we made it yeah. up to Maine. A hundred percent success rate yeah. on our plan. Um, so uh, you know, both of us had sort of done a loose budget of how much it would take to get back to L.A. with the assumption that we would run our own businesses once we were back there because both of us felt really strongly that we wanted to be primarily remote if we lived in L.A. L.A. is a great place to live, um, but it's a horrible place if you have to commute from one side of the city to another every day, and so that was sort of part of our strategy is to start building out a business. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point is that when we started this plan of like becoming full-time cruisers, it wasn't with the idea of working working full-time remotely from the boat. It was actually the more traditional idea that, you know, we were just going to put $30,000 into a savings account. We are going to save up until we have that number, and then we are going to take a year off and sail back to California. And the idea was that we actually were going to take the time off and not work. But one thing that I would say about that that was always my concern is, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm 31. And um, as a woman, as a professional woman, as someone who wants to have kids one day, too, um, there's a lot of uh, sort of side-eye for women who step out of the career workplace um, to do things like sail around the world or have a baby for a year. And so I, in particular, said, you know, I don't want to just hang out. You know, I want to have a mission if we're going to do this. And I think both of us are very, um, I, what would be the word, like overly productive? Like we're obsessed with oh, yeah, side we, hustle. Yeah, we, we're like side hustlers. Yeah, we you know? can't not work. Sure. So like, like the idea of just sort of like sitting around in a beautiful place yeah. is kind of, kind of boring. So we were like, we need something. We started on the, the more traditional young cruiser route of like oh, yeah. starting the blog. We started the social media accounts and everything and was thinking, you know, maybe that can be a way that we can. Which is super fun. We like ourselves or, it. Yeah. Um, but then, so when, so I think the thing that really turned it, though, is as we, both of us started taking, um, as we started working toward our goal of quitting our jobs, and once we quit our jobs, we took um, freelance contracts to subsidize our podcast. 
lot of money. And um, as we started looking basically at the amount of money that we could make for time investment for actual areas of expertise mm-hmm. versus running a blog and getting affiliate links or whatever, um, it was way, way smarter of an investment of our time to actually do what we were good at. <laughs> right. And it's, it's not stepping out of our career path in the same way. You know, I mean, there's right. there's definitely ways to monetize a blog and social media oh, and doing the influencer route. I mean, you know, you've talked with both of them, but Trailing with Vagabond and S.C. Delos, like, they're, you know, we bow down to them. Like, they, I, I, they I, have, whoa, 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 I have not talked to Vagabond yet. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. You've got to talk with them. No, I haven't. I, I wouldn't. I would love to. We'll see. Uh, anyway, uh, I have not talked to the Vagabond yet. Yes. Uh, I've noticed I say yes. That's okay. Uh, um, um, sorry sorry to yes. interrupt. I have, I have tons of questions going through my head, but you guys, are, like, are explaining away, so keep going. I'm just going <laughs> to let, let you guys go. Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely thought about going that route, and we started going that route. And Tori's done an amazing job. I mean, this is what Tori does. Tori does audience development for a living, so she's done a great job at building it's our... It's kind of funny with her blog. I feel like the, the toddler's children have no shoes because they often don't do the full investment in our social and online properties that would actually create a sustainable business because I'm busy doing it for other people. And it's, it's, right. We started going that route of doing that, but then, you know, as we were transitioning out of our jobs, Tori and I both took very different routes in terms of what we, how we started building a business that could be remote. Um, I went the route of, of joining the two um, partners and creating a company. So ABG is a partnership between myself, Franz Aliquo, and Kate Gardner. Um, and they are both based in New York. They, you know, can be on the ground with the clients much more than I can. Um, and we've kind of worked together to build a business that's now about 12 people. Um, Tori, though, took the route of starting out really as herself. And as a freelancer, kind of working with individual contra- contracts and then built it out from Yeah, I mean, so my business is entirely contract and contractor-based. So I do have people working for me on every contract that I work with. But the transition that I made was, and one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this task was I, until starting my own business, was managing between 20 to 70 people, depending on... Um, the role that I was in, and I love managing people, but you can't you can't remotely manage a huge company from a boat. That's really hard to do. Like I wouldn't recommend doing that. And so mm-hmm. I knew that I needed to step a little bit away from direct personnel management um, and, and company management in that way, and build a company where I could focus on a really narrow skill set that I knew how to do and knew really solid people who could support me because I've built this network of really awesome people who have worked with me in the past and basically hand off pieces of contracts to them that need absolutely no oversight. So the people, I mean, no oversight is is a stretch, but like the people who work with me and for me at this point are the best in their field and can work completely autonomously 
autonomously without me having to babysit them. Um, and that's not necessarily something that I want to do forever because I love mentoring people, and that's been a big part of how I've built that network is by growing people to that skill level. But um, I just didn't want to be anyone's boss. Like, I wanted to be my own boss. I was really sick of building companies for other people, and I was like, I want to build my own company and, like, be my own boss. <laughs> well, right. And so that was my real goal is just to have sort of ultimate freedom for a change. Okay. All right. I I agree with you. I'm on I'm on <laughs> that page as well, right? Um there was a there's a lot there. So Yeah. Uh, I, um <laughs> so, so give me give me just a minute. So first, uh you moved on to the boat while you still had your other corporate jobs though, correct? Yes. Yeah. Was what I'm gathering from this. So you were living on the boat in um, it was actually Jersey, Jersey City, City, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a little while later that you guys decided to quit your job. Is this correct? How like how long were you living on the boat with your corporate job before you decided to quit your job? Were, I would say mentally we were already to the space where we knew that we needed to move on from our job. Right. Right. It was probably about, I don't know, maybe. So we moved on to the boat in October um, mm-hmm. and fully by December. So we were sort of bridging. And I was in March. And okay, I cool. quit in March, yeah. So we had a few months where we were. Of, of last year. Yeah, yeah. Of last year, of 2016. Yeah, yeah. March of 2016. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Real quickly, did you, when you quit your jobs, had you already started your new businesses? Uh, I had started taking contracts on the side that did not conflict with my contractual agreements with my company. <laughs> Very okay. specifically, I'd like to say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. So <laughs> on my side, we started having conversations. And it was really um, basically just timing up with when I quit that we were able to just go full swing and, and pivot into that as what I was focused on full time. I would, and I'd add one other thing to that. Um, I wouldn't recommend what I did. I think John had a little bit of an easier transition in the scaling up, but we basically had three months in which I quit my job, built and incorporated the company after having done some side hustle. And we took off cruising. And if you've ever prepared a boat for cruising, even if it's a really well-found boat, um, which ours was, you know, we had lived on it for a few months. Yeah, but, I mean, we, you know, we, during those three months, we we redid the electrical, we put in solar and wind, we... Um, everything. Yeah, we, we did everything. major, major project. We redid all the plumbing before we propane. left. We redid the whole propane system. And I was doing that while working 12 to 14 hours a day building up a client base, right. and that is, I would not recommend that. We were for a couple weeks in there. Yeah, yeah it sucks. <laughs> so I would definitely give a longer timeline to anyone else who's looking to do that. <laughs> Okay, um, so I want to understand a little bit more about exactly what uh, both of you actually do. So when you say build up contracts, Tori, like, so you, 
um, you were working for Slate at the time. I mean, did you just, like, because of the industry, uh, and maybe working at Upworthy or whatever, like, what do you do? What do you tell these customers? Like, as in, a co- what is this contract for? That, what are they asking you to do in this contract? This is kind of basically my question. I guess. Yeah. So I'm going to try to explain it in the shortest way possible, but essentially my background is as a storyteller. It's as a writer and editor. But I right. think it's a really unique set of skills of how to build large audiences that's traditionally called audience development. Right. Um, but uh, my skill set is a little bit higher level, so I'm not just, you know, managing a Facebook page or, um, you know, running ads, but instead I work with companies that usually have a social impact goal because my main interest is in creating social impact through reaching large audiences. And I work with those um, companies to create content that people actually want to engage with online and then help them distribute it in really effective ways. So I think the thing that makes me very hireable is that um, I help people make good content um, and get a lot of bang for their buck for distribution. So oftentimes I get called by media companies, nonprofits, like Fortune 500 companies, who say, like, we have this specific problem, and usually the problems range from um, we're a retail-based company and we want to start drawing in more people to care about our brand. How do we do that? Or we lost half of the traffic from our site and we don't know why. Help us, you know. And um, I help them because I have a really broad array of skills in this very specific space. Um, I do a lot of things within that from helping people build their content um, and like actually producing stories with a team to managing their social platforms to auditing and advising their ultimate products and working as basically an advisor to their company to help coach their teams and build more functional organizations. So it's it's not one thing, um, but it's a very weird specific skill set that not that many people have right now, and so it's allowed me to build a pretty large client base pretty quickly. Okay. Um, I don't know if that helps right. you understand it. <laughs> it, it, it does. It does. I, uh, I have a feeling if I said what I got out of it, I would totally oversimplify it, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> If that makes I any sense. Of, I drive a lot of eyeballs online to good stories. Right. So yeah. I mean, what, 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 I mean, you sound you sound like a sorry. You, I mean, it sounds like you're a copywriter, but you also have to like manage to know. I don't know to know where to put them and how to write that story or how to um, create that story, but with all sorts of different media aspects to it. And then yeah, I, mean, I, I think the difference between like just being like a good writer who can tell a good story is what I'm interested in is understanding how social and search algorithms affect how content travels online and then right. using the way people interact with the website, the UX um, and mm-hmm. um, analytics. Right. to make better content. So, like, I'm a good storyteller, definitely, but I can look at patterns in ways sure. that people don't usually do, and that makes me valuable in that space. Okay. So, 
and I'm really good at organizing people. So, like, half of my work is right. helping people organize other people. <laughs> right, and yeah. Like, looking at patterns and telling people things they didn't realize about their own work. Okay. I mean, so, so I can I can kind of see that. I mean, you're, you're almost, okay. You're like in the SEO world out there, in a way. You're like you're like copywriter SEO. I'm thinking of all the crazy like tools that I can't think of their names that like Pat Flynn rattles off for something. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, but I mean, like, the, the like like I'm like the king's hand of those tools. So like I look right. at tools as sisters, and then I tell the CEO of the companies that I work with like which ones are useful for them, which ones aren't, and then I like hire people or manage people to do this stuff. I don't I don't copyright SEO myself, but I like I can implement the heck out of it. Yeah, that's kinda of weird. She actually wears the little hand of the king you know, you know, around the bows. It's a little awkward at times. Oh gosh. Available now to do this no, stuff, I actually, or uh, I, 
I had planned on sending out an email being like, hey, I'm open for business, but I actually never needed to send that email. I told a few strategic people that I knew were in the same field as me who had tended their own business because, as I mentioned, like this is a very niche skill set. There are very few people who do it, and so we kind of have a good referral circle going in that way. Yeah, and I'd also say, like, both Tori and my business partner, Kate, are on a bunch of listservs are very active communities of women. Yeah. Um, and both for Tori's business and for my business, we've gotten a lot of referrals. Uh, referrals and leads and stuff just through those communities. But I would say that the building up of the business, to be more specific, is not that I was trying to sell my services, but that every time you take on a new contract or you even prepare to take on a new contract, that's sometimes the most amount of work in the contract. You have to pull together a very mm-hmm. compelling proposal and have a lot of discussions to build trust before people are willing to pay you a lot of money. And so I had, you know, three main clients that I was onboarding at that time that also required as part of the contract to build pretty extensive strategies for implementation, which required a lot of work. So um, it's like starting a new job. You know, the first few weeks are always the craziest because you're trying to figure out what your new job is, but you're doing that with like several jobs at the same time. Well, yeah, with sawdust covering your whole body. (laughs) Right, right. Okay, so, I mean, in these contracts, they basically come to you asking you for stuff first or um like were they like here here's what I need. What can you help us with? Is that basically how that went? Yeah. You wrote I mean, the proposal? It, okay. it depends on the it depends on the contract, but I would say half the time someone emails me and says, I have this problem, you know who the right person to fix it is and most of the time I'll refer them to someone who's cheaper and more specifically the answer to their problem, but sometimes those problems are hard to solve, you know, when you're trying to come up with an entirely new way to to distribute content online or you're trying to build an entire editorial team to build up toward an exit in three years, like, mm-hmm. those are complicated problems to solve, and that's when I usually get in the middle of it and actually, you know, say, hey, I can help you with that. So, right. um, I think, again, it goes back to, like, Practicing good karma. <laughs> like part of the not being, or part of the thing about being vague about what you do is it leaves it leaves it really open for people who know that they have a problem that they need help with to come to either of us and just pop up the problem but not know what the solution is. If you say, "Oh, I do social media" or "I do PR," and that's it, you mm-hmm. can get pigeonholed, and if they don't realize that's what they need. Like, they wouldn't even think to come to you. But if you're just kind of, like, both of us kind of have this reputation now of just being people who can figure things out. So people will come to us and just be like, this is a problem we're having with our company. What do you think? And then, you know, we'll go from there in terms of building a proposal. And because I'm a former journalist, like, I'd love to talk to people about their companies and, like, learn what what the thing is that they're trying to figure out. Because even if I'm not... I, I'm not looking at it from the interest point of, like, I don't want to sell you on my services, but most of the problems I solve is by looking at models of other companies and how they solve something and knowing what works and what doesn't. So I just mm-hmm. love talking to people about how their companies work kind of the way that you do, you know, which is one of the reasons why I love your podcast. It's oh. interesting to hear 
other people have problems. You know? Right, right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much. Um, well, my problem is I'm in this industry that cannot be remote, right? I monitor people's nervous systems during spine surgery and brain surgery. I have to go into the operating room in order to help with that. That's my real job, right? How do I transition myself into something that um, I can do all those things, but you guys seem to be in it even from a, like, those were your real job, right? Like, like those were yeah. your things, and you did grow, you, you know, and you went up through those, and you had yeah. those contacts, <laughs> and you had those obviously, big like, contracts um, and whatever else. Yeah, some, like, some industries are obviously going to lend themselves better to being remote than others, and so, like, mm-hmm. sorting, like, both work in the digital space, like, it, it right. definitely makes much easier to be remote, and then we, you know, I just got back from California where we were meeting with our downtown Los Angeles client, um, so we tend to go and meet with people face-to-face somewhat regularly. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going a little more story. Yeah. I go about once a month to a client, um, but I think that, like, certain things obviously lend itself more than others. I would say, like, with where you are, Teddy, I'd be curious to know if there's any kind of, like, training that you could do along the way. So you could actually develop, like, some kind of training program and actually train people in places that you're trying to cruise to anyways. I kind of just flipped it around on me. I was going to ask you what the <laughs> JVG does, John, but uh, well, that's, that's, that's very... Well, training program. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We both have a lot of 
skills, and you do too, clearly. You have to, like, be okay with not developing some of them for a while and knowing that later maybe you'll want to run a company that needs to be hands-on in person or something like that, you know? Right, right, right. Thank you for that. Thank you again for listening. I think that some of the key points to take out of this episode are that John and Tori don't necessarily take every job that companies may ask them to help with. If the job or the contract does not lend itself to working remotely, if the contract requires that they are having daily video chats with clients and employees, then they realize that they may have to pass those contracts up and recommend somebody else that isn't in the middle of the Bahamas to do those jobs. Of course, it was also fun to hear about how they purchased and moved SV Scallywag and their thoughts and feelings about quitting their corporate jobs and creating businesses of their own. In part two, we'll hear more about how they stay connected and the lifestyle and logistics that they have to plan for that are a little bit different from your typical cruiser that isn't running a full-time business while island hopping. We'll also hear about some of the tools that they love to use. Make sure you check out uh, all of the show notes for this episode over at sailloot.com slash episode 053 for all the links to the awesome articles, other podcasts, and sailing blogs that I have referenced in this episode, as well as the episode sponsors. There are a lot of amazing people that we mentioned in this podcast and a lot of amazing links and resources that can be found in those show notes. The sponsors for this episode are Shelter Cove Marina and Mantis Marine. I've now got an 85-pound Mantis Marine galvanized steel anchor, Mantis Swivel, Mantis Bridle, and Chain Hook on Asante. I wasn't satisfied that the 55-pound Delta that Asante came with uh, would be good enough. So I decided to go big and get the best anchor and ground tackle that I could over at Mantis Marine. Head on over to sailloot.com slash mantis to check out all of their awesome products for yourself. If you have any questions about anything, please feel free to email me over at teddyj at sailloot.com. Of course, you can find us at sailloot.com, facebook.com slash sailloot, and on Twitter at sailloot. You can sign up for the Sailloot email rally, leave a review for the podcast, and subscribe to the podcast in iTunes all in one place over at sailloot.com slash podcast review. Thanks again for listening. I hope that all of you can find a way to find your sail loot to live a life rich in experiences. I hope to meet all of you out on the water, fair winds, and following seas. Asante sana and peace and love.